Good morning. So to catch the kids up on what's been going on, always good to have the Edge kids with us here this first Sunday of the month. Um, to catch the Edge kids on, up on what's going on, we've, we've uh, taken a break from going through the book of Romans. We're about to start in on chapters 9 through 11. We'll start that in a couple weeks. And Romans 9 through 11 is one of the most difficult parts of the Bible, one of the hardest parts of the Bible to understand. And in some ways, as I've been saying, it's hard for us, especially as the kind of Christians that we are, to understand this part of the Bible. Now, some of you kids may know that there are a whole bunch of different branches on the Christian family tree, right? You may have friends that are Catholic, Roman Catholic. You may have friends that are Greek Orthodox or Russian Orthodox or Serbian Orthodox. You may have friends who are Episcopalian or Anglican, who are Lutheran, Presbyterian, Methodist, Disciples of Christ. You may have friends who are United Church of Christ, and you may have friends who are Baptist. And there are all sorts of flavors of Baptist. There are probably as many Baptists as there are all, are all the other kinds of denominations put together. You may also have friends who, like you, go to a church that is non-denominational or independent. And we are called evangelicals. That's the type of Christian we are. We are evangelicals. Now, where does that come from? Well, it comes from the Bible. In 2 Timothy, we've been, as we've talked about, in the, we're doing a sort of a brief five-week series on what it means to be an evangelical. And we've been taking different verses from uh, the earlier part of 2 Timothy. Why? Just because. And in 2 Timothy, chapter 1, verse 8, Paul, who's writing this letter to Timothy, Timothy is sort of his, his young apprentice. Paul is Timothy's Jedi master. So Timothy is his Padawan learner, and he says to Timothy, Do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner. But join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Now that word gospel, which, the word is, which is translated as gospel in English, is in the Greek, euangelion. And you would put that in English like this. Euangelion. Sometimes you might see this written as the evangel. And all that is the same as gospel. Now, does anybody know, any of you kids know what the word gospel means? Or euangelion? Yes. It means good news. Yeah, that's a... that's. A good translation. Euangelion, the gospel, is good news. And specifically, this is good news about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness, the reconciliation with God that is made possible through his life, death, and resurrection. And there are two important things that we should keep in mind about this. One is that it's good, right? I mean, this news is good because presumably the idea is that that we are in a state where we need Jesus' redemption, the redemption that's available through Jesus. So that's good, right? But it's also news in that it is true 
whether we happen to like it or not, whether we agree with it or not, whether we want to believe it or not, it's news. I could believe that it's 50 degrees in here, and, but I'm not going to be perfectly comfortable without the fans and the windows open because it is 79. So it's news. News is news. Whether, whether you're happy or not about the fact that the government shut down, whether you're happy or not about the fact that the House passed a bill yesterday that's going to pay the federal employees who got furloughed, it's news. That is what it is. So the evangel, the evangelion, the gospel is good news. And we, as evangelicals, believe that we are supposed to be telling the good news. And in a sense, I remember when I, when I uh, first met with a friend, who, somebody who's now a very good friend, he's a, a Jewish friend, and, and uh, he said, yeah, I don't understand when people get upset when evangelicals evangelize. You're, you're evangelicals. You evangelize. That's like your thing. Uh, <clears throat> pretty much, yes, we believe that we are supposed to be spreading this good news. And again, where do we get this idea? Well, we get this idea from Scripture. Turn with me, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And here's what Paul has to say about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'll give you a moment to open up your Bibles. 2 Corinthians is right after 1 Corinthians. And if you have a 3 Corinthians in your Bible, you need to stop shopping for Bibles at the dollar store. (laughs) Chapter 5, verse 11, Paul says, Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but we're giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what's seen rather than what's in the heart. If we're out of our mind, it is for God's sake. And if we're in our right mind, it's for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, there's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was in Christ reconciling the whole world to himself, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us that message of reconciliation. We are therefore God's, Christ's ambassadors. It's as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore people on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So as God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor I heard you, in the the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. 
what we see Paul articulating is that this is this evangel, this gospel is good news. It is good, but it is news. And so he feels an urgency to share it. You hear that, don't you, in his words. He feels a, an urgency, a compulsion to share this and to urge people to be reconciled to God. He says it's like we're, we're Christ's ambassadors. We're Christ's PR team, his marketing firm. We are his representatives. We're the ones who are given the responsibility of bringing this message and then of inviting people to be reconciled to God. And it's not just Paul saying this. This is what Paul did. If you look at the story of what Paul did, he went around the Mediterranean basin and he basically would go into a town, go into the synagogue and tell them about Jesus, get beat up, And then if he was lucky, he'd be able to go somewhere else in town and tell people about Jesus. If he wasn't, he would just be driven out of town, sometimes conscious, sometimes not. Sometimes he'd be put in jail, sometimes he wouldn't. But but he went around spreading this message and planting communities of people who would be followers of Jesus, i.e. churches. This is what he did. When we read the stories in the book of Acts about what the other apostles did, they did the same sort of thing. They went around spreading this message. They seemed to have this sense that this was news that had to be told, that it was good news, but it was news that had to be told to everybody. To everybody. So not only to the people who were like them, but to the people who weren't a thing like them. And some of them shared that news and spread that news in the places where they lived, and some of them shared that news and spread that news in places that they never ever expected they would go to. Some of them were people who were business folks who would travel, and they did it that way. We read elsewhere in Paul's letters about Priscilla and Aquila. They were probably uh, fairly prosperous merchants, and so they had homes in multiple cities. And so they helped to establish the church in those cities as they traveled around in the course of their business. But this is what the early church did. The early church spread the word about Jesus and invited people to follow him and formed communities of people who were his followers. You never, ever get the sense as you read the New Testament from Jesus, from any of his followers, that anybody would ever say, you know, Jesus, you could kind of take him or leave him. You know, he's a good guy, good teacher, did some nice things, healed some people, admirable sort of fellow. You know, you might be inspired by reading a book about him, but, you know, whether you want to actually follow him, it's kind of up to you. No, the, the message of the gospel, is that Jesus Christ is Lord of the universe. That's good news if you are going to be his follower. If you are not, that actually is really bad news. Okay? So, we, as evangelicals, tend to be a part of the Christian family tree that especially pays attention to and embraces this idea that we are called to evangelize and to spread this message. We are not, as Paul says, ashamed to testify to the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord of the universe. Now, that can have some unfortunate consequences. I'm sure nobody here has ever encountered anybody like this, but the truth is there are some people out there who think that they must be really representing Jesus well if everybody hates them, right? Did you ever work with somebody who felt like it was their mission in life 
to make Jesus as odious as possible in the eyes of everybody around them. They felt like it was their job to tell people about Jesus and about everything he expected of them. And if people rejected them, then that meant they were rejecting Jesus and not him. When actually they were just rejecting the guy because he's a jerk, right? There is, it is certainly the case that people can reject the gospel and then be unhappy with us if we are people who embrace the gospel. But it can also be the case that you can just be rejected for being a jerk. So, do we want to be a jerk? No. Okay, the kids, this is, this is the part. Okay. Do, do we want to be a jerk? No. Okay, was Jesus a jerk? No, although some people really didn't like some of the things he said. But again, if people are going to reject the message of the gospel, they should be rejecting it because they don't like Jesus, not because they don't like you. End of that bit. So, I have been promising all along that I would help all of us to remember what it is to be an evangelical by use of a handy mnemonic device. And I am about to reveal what that is. I know you have been excited about this. Many of you woke up this morning with bated breath, knowing today, hoping, because I didn't tell you it would be, but hoping today would be the day. And I tell you now is the day. So, as you may recall, we've had five words or phrases. We first talked about Scripture. The fancy term for this is Biblicism. But the first mark of evangelicalism is that we are Bible people. We tend to read the Bible. We tend to pay attention to what it says. We tend to believe that we ought to be reading it and paying attention to what it says. We are embarrassed if our Bible has not been opened, if we are told to open it up in Bible study and the pages stick together. Some of us will therefore take it out at night and run it over with the car just so we don't have that happen to us. But yeah, I, I, a Catholic priest once referred to evangelicals as those strange people who go around everywhere with a Bible under their arm. That's, that's not too far off. So we are Bible people. In our churches, we tend to spend a lot of time on the exposition of Scripture. In some churches, the sermon will go on for 8 or 12 minutes. That may feel like really nice to you right now. But as evangelicals, we tend to hold up Scripture as, as our standard. The second, the word I used is cross, and the fancy term is crucicentrism. But we believe that upon the cross, Jesus died an atoning death, that this was a pivotal hinge point in cosmic history and that you really can't understand anything important apart from it. You notice that in the hymns we sing, where we sing a lot about the blood, the atoning blood of Jesus. It may seem a little weird if you're not used to it, but we believe that the cross, again, is not something that is optional. It was not just a really sad situation where this horribly misunderstood guy got himself killed, and uh, if only everybody realized how nice he was, and that they should just be nice to each other, then the whole thing wouldn't have happened. No. We believe that it was foreordained that Messiah had to come and die an atoning death for the sake of his people. Where do we get that idea? Scripture. 
Right. So, biblicism and crucicentrism are the first two. The third, any questions at this point so far, by the way? Okay. The third word is witness. Oh, no, it's not. Sorry. Thank you. That's the fourth word. Thanks. The third word is faith. Fancy term, conversionism. Generally speaking, evangelicals believe that we are to make a decision to follow Jesus, that you can't be born an evangelical. There's no such thing as a cradle evangelical. Being a follower of Jesus means that you have to respond. So usually, we will not baptize babies, but we wait until people reach an age where they can say with integrity and as people who are able to make this kind of decision that they are choosing to follow Jesus and that they choose to be baptized, right? So that's part of why we do that the way we do. But we also, again, what, where we get this idea is from Scripture, where we keep hearing Jesus say these obnoxious things like, you must be born again and repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. We believe that the natural path of our sinful human condition does not go anywhere good. And so we need to turn from sin and turn to God. And that Jesus enables us to do that by his Holy Spirit. And we think this is key. So that's the third one, is faith. The fourth one, which we've been talking about some today, is witness. Technical term being activism. And that does have to do not only with telling people about Jesus, it does also involve the idea that following Jesus is supposed to be a total lifestyle. That you don't just sort of punch the clock on Sunday morning for an hour, you do your God thing then, and then the rest of your week you just sort of do what you do. You know, the, that, that, okay, yeah, your identity is as a Christian, and you kind of, you know, observe the holidays, show up in church, but, you know, how it affects you is, you know, maybe it makes you feel a little better, gives you a little more confidence, you might go to heaven when you die. Uh, that's not it. No, we believe that we are called to be disciples of Jesus, i.e. followers of him, and that means that we're supposed to live our whole lives as, as his people, that we are supposed to be continually transformed into his likeness, and that we are supposed to live out actively the lives of followers of Jesus. So that, that does mean that we are sharing the good news as God gives us opportunity to and in ways that make sense, uh, but it also means that, that this has to do with everything about us, with how we spend our time and how we spend our money and with the kind of relationships that, that we build, that, that this is supposed to be a, a, a total lifestyle. So that's activism. And the fifth, and, and just in case you care, um, some scholars would stop here, but many, and I've come to be persuaded of this, many would add one fifth mark, which is... Tradition, baby. And by that, what I, I mean is not so much doing traditional Christian-y things, uh, but maintaining the tenets of historic, orthodox, actually be, for us Protestant, because we're Protestant, not Catholic, 
historic Protestant orthodoxy, meaning that evangelicals hold to the fundamental tenets, the fundamental beliefs of the Christian faith, that as much as we are interested in being faithful to Scripture, recognizing the importance of the cross, believing that you have to come to faith and that you're supposed to share that, we also would recognize that there are other movements who think they're doing all of these but are at odds with historic Protestant orthodoxy. You may have had the Jehovah's Witnesses come around and knock on your door, or as happened to me, accost me as I was leaving the gym the other day. These people are very committed if they want to talk to me after I've worked out. (laughs) But they don't hold to historic orthodoxy. They don't believe in the Trinity. In fact, they believe that our church and all the churches that uh, that, that, that hold to this are... Uh, in fact, of the devil, and that we are teaching people uh, false things. Our Mormon friends, likewise. The Mormons do not hold to historic orthodoxy. They have their scripture, which is in addition to the scripture we have. They have their own extra scriptures. They believe the cross is important. They encourage people to convert to their faith, and they are very active about spreading it as well, but they do not hold to historic orthodoxy. So while there are some demographic similarities... While in some ways we, they might look like us, uh, they are not us. We are people who hold to historic, orthodox Christian faith. And so in that, that's one of the reasons why, for example, when we say the creed, when we take communion, we are, are identifying ourselves. Even though we're independent, we're not part of a denomination, that's not the right answer, kids. I know you're anticipating that. Uh, One of the reasons we say the creed is because we want to affirm that we are part of this long movement, this 2,000-year movement, not just Protestants, but Orthodox and Catholic faithful believers in God who hold to the tenets of Orthodox Christianity. We hold to those as well. All right? Any questions at this point? Yes, Joe. Well, I mean, it depends um, who they are. Like, if they want to offer us a building, we tend to feel better about them. <coughs> and if they, want us, if they want us to pay a lot of money for their building and won't replace the carpet, we don't feel as good about them. Uh, but, uh, no, it, and, and one, of the, one of the things that can get complicated here is that within denominations that, uh, that they may say that they're histori- teaching historic orthodoxy, but a lot of the pulpits aren't teaching historic orthodoxy. Um, they may not be very active in sharing their faith. They may find that embarrassing. Uh, there are people in traditional Protestant denominations who will preach against Scripture. We talked about this before. They will read something in Scripture, and they'll say, I don't like that. We can't do that. We don't have the freedom to look. Well, we can say we don't like it. We can say, okay, I don't like this. Now how do I make sure that I conform to Scripture rather than making Scripture conform to me? And so... At the same time, within these denominations, there are people who hold to all of these. There are people who would be evangelical. Sometimes they're called confessing members of these mainline Protestant denominations. But uh, there are, there, there's further history beyond that, and, and sometime we can go into that, but, uh, but now is not that time. So what now is the time for, and I think we have some pictures to help us, <clears throat> is I'm going to give you the mnemonic that will help you to remember Anybody want to guess what the first word is? No. Sugs. K. 
can with Tom Brady. The F word is fight. <laughs> Suggs can fight with Tom Brady. Scripture, cross, faith, witness, tradition, baby. Let us prepare for communion. Yes. What's that? Because it's not one of them. So we're going to have, now our time, we're at the beginning of communion, we are going to recite together the Nicene Creed. Service would be part of activism. Uh, We're going to recite the Nicene Creed, and we are going to do that all together, and then after that, we'll invite you to come forward and to take the elements and would invite you to do that uh, by receiving them, taking them back to, your, uh, oh, back to your seats, and then we will actually partake of them together. The red is wine, the white is grape juice, and the bread is unleavened. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe, stand up for this, Lord, Lord that Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him, all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the body, the life of the world to come. Amen.